Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Officials from the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation announced plans to close Riverside County's Chuckawalla Valley State Prison and to stop using a privately owned facility in Kern County operated by CoreCivic. A group of 100 prisoners filed an amicus brief supporting the closure of California Correctional Center, stating that the nearly six decade old prison was falling apart. Rain leaked through the roof and during 2021's enormous Dixie fire, smoke filled the cells and the electricity and water were shut off. Officials explained they considered a number of factors in their decision to close the prison. Operating costs, the effects on nearby cities and local jobs, and public safety needs. Officials plan to terminate the lease in March 2024 and to close Chuckawalla Valley by March 2025. California City Correctional Facility is the last private prison to hold state inmates. At the height of the prison system's overcrowding in 2006, when the inmate population reached 173,479, some institutions had twice as many people as they were built to house. California began sending prisoners to six contracted facilities in Tennessee, Michigan, Arizona, Mississippi, and Oklahoma. The practice of interstate transfers peaked in 2010 when some 10,400 inmates were being held out of state. By 2019, California had ended its agreement with the last out-of-state contracted facility in Eloy, Arizona. California's Corrections Department is operating under a 2010 federal court order to keep its prison population at or below 137.5% of the prison system's intended capacity. California's 33 prisons hold 92,634 men and women at 109% capacity. Many prisons remain more seriously overcrowded. North Kern State Prison in Kern County is operating at 153% capacity. Avenal State Prison in Kings County at 150% capacity. And Valley State Prison in Madera County at 148% capacity. Built to imprison 1,738 people, Chuckawalla Valley currently holds 2,037 inmates at 177% capacity. There are 1,899 prisoners at California City Correctional Facility. Corrections officials stated that inmates at these institutions will be rehoused into appropriate level prisons. In Alabama, the fifth poorest state in the nation, the state legislature directed $400 million of its allotted $2.2 billion budget 
from the American Rescue Plan COVID relief funding to begin construction of three new mega prisons. Katie Glenn of the Southern Poverty Law Center stated, these funds were meant to support struggling hospitals, provide a lifeline to small businesses, create access to education for rural communities and much more. They were not intended to finance Alabama's latest prison construction boondoggle. Alabama's prison system is notoriously overcrowded with the highest homicide rate in the country, inadequate health care, systemic indifference, discrimination, and life-threatening conditions. But as many states across the country look to reduce prison populations by reforming overly harsh sentencing laws, Alabama is doubling down on mass incarceration with some of the harshest criminal laws and highest incarceration rates in the country. This year, Alabama's parole board is granting parole in only 11% of cases. In 2014, the SPLC and the Alabama Disabilities Advocacy Program filed suit to force the state's prison to provide proper medical and mental health care to inmates. In that ruling, a federal judge declared mental health care in Alabama prisons to be horrendously inadequate, resulting in a skyrocketing suicide rate. In 2016, an agreement was reached to ensure that people with disabilities receive treatment and services required by federal law. In 2020, the U.S. Department of Justice sued the Alabama Department of Corrections for failing to meet its obligations under the 8th and 14th Amendments, which protect due process and prohibit excessive punishment. In 2020, the U.S. Department of Justice sued the Alabama Department of Corrections for failing to meet its obligations under the 8th and 14th Amendments, which protect due process and prohibit excessive punishment. The DOJ contends that Alabama has failed to prevent violence and sexual abuse among incarcerated people, protect them from excessive force by security staff, and provide adequate living conditions. Glenn stated, the United States Department of Justice in its own investigation that building new facilities won't solve our issues. Only decarceration can do that. Earlier this week, Keith Lamar went on hunger strike at the Ohio State Penitentiary. He's been facing escalating harassment from administrators and guards as his execution this fall looms and as solidarity momentum builds on the outside. This harassment extends to new arbitrary rules preventing him from wearing spiritually significant jewelry and systematic interruptions during his visits. Keith is on death row due to allegations that he acted as an interracial peacemaker in the lead-up to the seminal 1993 Lucasville prison uprising. He was seized by guards during the first day of the uprising and was not present during any of the deaths which later occurred. His support crew asks that people call Regional Administrator Eric Lyle at 614-752-1736 and demand that Keith's demands for respect and safety are met. More information can be found at keithlamar.org. This week, Emily Murphy's struggle for adequate food in the Atlanta City Detention Center focused attention on the 19 people facing charges for domestic terrorism for their participation in the mass movement to stop the construction of a cop city in the Atlanta forest. Emily is one of those forest defenders who is still being held and has been denied access to vegan food for almost a month. They have not only protested on their own behalf, but have drawn attention to the systemic neglect and abuse all prisoners face in this jail. 
As of February 24th, it seems as though protest and a flood of calls from outside have forced the jail to begin providing adequate vegan meals, shifting the struggle to Emily's release and defeating the state of Georgia's wider campaign of repression and intimidation. On this episode, we hear from Emily and one of Emily's dear friends. After that, we share an interview we conducted with Sarah Alvarez, a lawyer with the Civil Liberties Defense Center, who powerfully analyzes the fraught charging strategies Georgia prosecutors are using. Emily Murphy is my friend and a political prisoner arrested for their involvement in the Stop Cop City movement. Specifically, they were arrested at a protest held after the murder of Tortuguita. They were charged with domestic terrorism, um, despite there being no evidence that they did anything besides attend a protest. They've been held without bond for almost a month at the Atlanta City Detention Center. Emily is a sweetheart. They love to cook for anybody. Big pots of vegan food for anybody who's hungry. My favorite thing that they make is vegan tuna salad. They love all sorts of human and non-human animals and the trees and the land. And they do so much care work for so many people. They are going to read a statement about the conditions that they are facing in the Atlanta City Detention Center. And it's horrible. I am asking you all to please make phone calls so that we can advocate to change the conditions, not just for Emily, but for all of the people inside. It's a big reason that many people are involved in the movement to stop Cop City is because we do not want to give more resources, more land, more weapons to the people who kidnap and torture and murder the rest of us. So thank you for listening. I appreciate it. I'm writing this statement to describe the horrific conditions at the Fulton County Jail section of the Atlanta City Detention Center. I was arrested on Saturday, January 21st and taken to Fulton County Rice Street, where I immediately informed the intake nurse of my vegan dietary needs. It has now been 29 days since my arrest, and I still have not had consistent access to vegan food. The injustices around food and food systems for incarcerated folks go far beyond my personal needs. Many others have been denied timely access to food required to meet their dietary and health needs, such as folks who are diabetic being forced to wait many days, even weeks, without adequate meals that are necessary to regulate blood sugar. A friend that needs access to gluten-free food submitted a medical form over three and a half weeks ago and is still waiting. Per the jail policy, it is our right to have meals that are nutritionally balanced. However, we do not have access to fruits and vegetables, not even through purchase or commissary. Also per jail policy, two of our meals are supposed to be served hot. Our food is prepared at Fulton County Rice Street, even though there is a working kitchen that services the Atlanta City Detention Center. The food arrives here ice cold, and the oatmeal and grits have to be cut into chunks to be eaten because they are so coagulated. Our trays often come crushed, broken apart, and stepped on with the food all mixed together. None of the food has even an ounce of seasoning, with salt and pepper only available by purchase through commissary, causing accessibility to be an issue. Breakfast and lunch are served together anywhere from 1.45 to 5.30 a.m. every morning, with dinner not until around 6. The majority of folks here have only been charged, not convicted, of any alleged so-called crimes. Some have been here for nine-plus months, 
without a single phone call from their public defender. Most public defenders never answer the phone or communicate with their clients at all. Per jail policy, we are supposed to receive one visitor per week. However, visitation access has been completely denied. We are only outside of ourselves from one to three hours each day and are forced to eat dinner inside the cell at times. Free time is often reduced or eliminated as a punitive measure for talking during headcount or anything else that guards feel they want to take it away for. On two separate occasions, I witnessed guards pull out and hold tasers to people's backs for things such as passing a friend a Bible verse under the door and verbal disagreement over the TV channel. Medical requests are often ignored and medical information that is supposed to be private is not kept that way. Guards have also made derogatory comments regarding folks' mental health and medication usage, which is completely disgusting. Fulton County Jail Policy states that all inmates are guaranteed respect and dignity. Locking people in cages, taking away quote-unquote free time, and threatening with tasers is not a relationship of respect and dignity, but of abuse of power and oppression. Solidarity with incarcerated folks everywhere, all people should be free. My name is Sarah Alvarez. I'm a staff attorney at the Civil Liberties Defense Center. I am based in Kalapuya territory, otherwise known as Eugene, Oregon. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I work at the CLVC, the Civil Liberties Defense Center. This year we're celebrating our 20th year of defending activists. So state repression of environmental activists is nothing new, um, and it's been going on for a long time. You know, you can identify state repression from a number of different I guess you could say features. One of those things can be trumped up charges, which is kind of what is happening in Atlanta. To compare, in line three, folks were charged with felony theft of pipeline equipment when they were uh, locking down to stop the construction of pipelines. And in other environmental cases, for example, in the Green Scare, and also, folks are probably familiar with Jessica Reznicek, the water protector who was charged with terrorism. Those kinds of charges are, you know, RICO, those kinds of things are basically the state's way of trying to intimidate and scare movements that are successful. And there is history of these kinds of Trump Trump charges being used against folks who have strong environmental campaigns, which is what's happening in Atlanta currently with folks who are dealing with the domestic terrorism charges. Would you be willing to go ahead and define what RICO is and maybe just talk about the character of sort of racketeering or conspiracy charges and why that might be troubling for thinking about political movements? RICO is not my big wheelhouse, but I wanted to bring it up because it is something that environmental and animal rights activists has, have faced in the past. It, the basically, RICO stands for Racketeer Influenced um, and Corrupt Organizations Act. And it was passed initially to deal with mobs, basically like mob, like gang behavior. And it has since been used to target like larger campaigns for environmental and animal rights activists. So currently 19 people have been charged in Atlanta with uh, domestic terrorism. 
which is for folks who are interested in knowing it, it's like 16-11-222. There were previous arrests of people uh, related to the Stop Cop City campaign, but these charges first emerged in December, uh, likely in response to the campaign's successes and its increasing like following and, and people seeing it as like a really inspiring and beautiful movement to stop increased police militarization and also to preserve forest. The law that is being lobbed against these folks, the forest defenders, the domestic terrorism law, is a felony in the state of Georgia. And I should just caveat right here by saying I am not a Georgia lawyer, so I don't have specific expertise or knowledge about Georgia law. This is just what it says on the books. So the law was, I believe, inspired by the federal felony sentencing enhancement, which has been used again against uh, environmental activists in the past, like I was uh, mentioning, and criminalizes any felony violation, which basically causes or attempts to cause damage or destruction to critical infrastructure, a state or a government facility. And then that, that those actions are intended to either intimidate a civilian population, alter or change course or course uh, the policy of government, or to affect the conduct of uh, government. And then it goes on to talk about some other stuff. And just one more thing about the letter of the law, critical infrastructure is defined as, I'm just going to read it in the law, as a publicly or privately owned facility, systems, functions, or assets, whether physical or virtual, providing or distributing services for the benefit of the public, including but not limited to energy, fuel, water, agriculture, healthcare, finance, or communication, which could be interpreted to mean Oh, you know, it's so broad as to mean almost nothing. And so when this law, when the domestic terrorism law was first passed in Georgia, legislators there, and I'm obviously summarizing, but they said that they were passing the law because they wanted to combat acts of violence akin to the Boston Marathon bombing. There was a, a church massacre that occurred of nine Black parishioners in Charleston and then the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting. And so it was very targeted against violent acts, specifically against BIPOC people. And at this point, the way that it looks like the law is being applied to folks in Atlanta is really more about the movement and it's targeting the campaign and folks who are associated with the campaign. I really want people to know that Folks have been charged with, for domestic terrorism, not just for being in the forest, which that is part of the charges is that some folks have been charged with domestic terrorism for being affiliated with the movement and just being in the forest. But people have also been charged with domestic terrorism for attending a protest that occurred in downtown Atlanta after the police killing of a forest defender and those folks who were arrested in the city were also charged with domestic terrorism. And so the law has been um, applied significantly to this campaign as a whole, almost regardless of what acts are alleged for those specific movement participants. There's a mandatory minimum that the statute holds, which is five years, um, and it can go all the way up to 35 years. 
on at least on a federal level, there's been consistent targeting of folks who have engaged in movements for liberation, which have included um, Black power movements. And that goes all the way, you know, to folks associated with the Black Panthers, to um, the recent Black Lives Matter uprising. And the FBI in particular has continued to target and view those action, you know, the activities of those political groups as terrorism, whereas compared to, for example, like January 6th folks who stormed the Capitol, you know, that that is not necessarily how the federal government has treated those folks. So far, only one person, the government has only sought a federal sentencing enhancement for one of the January 6th rioters. And what also I just want to say on the issue of race is that this law was passed, you know, ostensibly to protect people of color from these massive um, and, you know, frequently like white supremacist oriented or motivated killings. And it's being used against activists who are clearly advocating for the protection and liberation of Black lives through the dismantling or trying to stop, I should say, um, the continued militarization of uh, police. And it, and I think, you know, I don't know if other guests have talked about this or if this is going to come up at another point, but the training school that, my understanding of the training school that the Atlanta Police Foundation wants to build in the forest is not just to train Atlanta cops, it's to train cops from all over the country. And so people know that increased police militarization leads to violence to Black people specifically. And so it really is a slap in the face to see this law that was, you know, supposedly passed to protect this group of people be weaponized against activists who are clearly for protecting Black life. One other thing that I wanted to just get out there is that the only record that the CLDC could find of this domestic terrorism law in Georgia being used was in the instance of the Atlanta spa shooter and then of a kid who, a young person who apparently threatened to shoot up their school. And those are the only two other instances that we could find that this law has been used against anyone in Georgia. And I think that when you compare that to the numerous people who have been arrested and charged for advocating for the forest, um, it's just such a clear and obvious political campaign on the part of the state. To speak a little bit more broadly, Mm-hmm. On exactly that point, you know, can I just sort of ask about the principle, like what is the relevance of sort of thinking about civil liberties, mm-hmm. uh, think, you know, thinking about what it means to defend civil liberties and why this kind of charging and uh, extremely disproportionate charging is a challenge for civil liberties, like, you know, people who are concerned with that as a principle. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. So the law, the domestic terrorism law in Georgia is a concern for anyone who cares about dissent, uh, civil liberties, 
I mean, you could even go as far to say like democracy and influencing your government, because when the government brings out these kinds of charges, it makes other people scared and afraid to participate in the most basic ways. Um, and so folks might be familiar, but there's been like a wide, wide, wide range of tactics that have been employed to try to save this forest and stop Cop City from being built. And the government's goal with applying these kinds of scary charges to, and of course, like domestic terrorism is like one of the scariest things you can throw at someone. And so the government's goal with doing this is to stop the campaign and to shut it down and to make people who would come to a protest or who would write letters to their elected officials or who would attend an event in the forest or who would organize their own event in their own city. It, the, they want those folks to be afraid that they too will be considered domestic terrorists. And that can be a really effective um, fear-mongering tactic. It doesn't seem like it's been successful in Atlanta. It seems like folks are continuing to organize. I know that there's a week of action coming up and it seems like folks are not deterred and that the movement has continued to be really vibrant and beautiful with folks contributing to resistance in like lots of different ways. The Stop Cub City movement has definitely gained national attention and the facility that the Atlanta Police Foundation wants to build is supposedly going to be for police nationwide. Um, there's also, you know, the environmental aspects to consider in terms of like a green, you know, a city in a forest like Atlanta, you know, a, a clean or not clean, but like a green city with trees and like a healthy environment is better for everyone as it relates to climate change. In the past and in the, you know, the case of Atlanta, the state kind of has like a tired little playbook that it brings out um, whenever folks are um, resisting. And, and that it goes, you know, I don't, I don't, like I said, I, you know, I'm not from Georgia. And so I don't want to say like that this is how um, state actors in Georgia always act, but, you know, other state actors and other places um, and, you know, federal actors, actors as well um, do seem to operate from the same kind of like playbook some of the affidavits that were used to arrest forest defenders in the forest made this claim about the Department of Homeland Security uh, designating the Stop Cop City movement or Defend the Atlanta Forest movement as domestic violent extremists. But there's been reporting that like, and the, and the Department of Homeland Security coming out and saying like, no, actually we didn't, we didn't, we, we didn't make such a classification. And so like that kind of, those kinds of like, lies or you know gross exaggeration or propaganda whatever you want to call it like that's like kind of a quintessential tactic that you could expect to see the other one that i think has like pretty obvious is like um the state engaging in like really violent or aggressive repression tactics like physically violent physically aggressive um so you know for example 
in line three, there was instances of helicopters buzzing protesters who were locked down, which was is you know pretty extreme. And then really excessive uses of force and some arrests where folks were injured. Um, in Atlanta, um, obviously there's been you know arrests which are violent, which can be violent. And there's been destruction of the forest, but there's also been like a literal police killing of a forest defender, which is, I mean, it's hard to imagine what could be more violent or aggressive from the state. This has been KiteLine. Please reach out if you have a news item we should cover, if you want to volunteer, or just to tell your story. Email us at kiteline at wfhb.org or send us a letter at KiteLine, care of WFHB, 108 West 4th Street, Bloomington, Indiana, 47404. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.